So, I was uh, so I started the uh, school this week, and for one of my engineering classes, I usually play this video of life in 2050. And there was a video made by this car manufacturer in China um, of what things will look like in 2050. And so um, like, you see this SUV and this family and what they're doing. And this like drone comes off the top of the car and goes to the mailbox and grabs your package. And, you know, uh, things where like holograms appear as they're kind of like talking to people and Anyway, um, so there's all of these things that we talk about, the technology, the things that have already happened, like there's a self-driving, you know, self-parking aspect to the, the video. It's like seven, seven eight minutes. Uh, some people are like, well, we already have that. And there's things that like, I don't know if we'd ever have a drone picking up your package from your car, you know, but the things like that. And so as you start thinking about the future and somebody's kind of like vision for the future, you can kind of like, you know, get your hands wrapped around what someone's vision is. And so then I asked them, I said, so... How old will you be? You know, what will life look like when you're 2050? Like, is it, will things get better? 50, things get worse? Better. Things get, what do you think? 2050. Things better? Yeah. Things worse? Worse. worse? Things better? Worse? Yeah. Context? So, the first question, though, I think, like, because then, it, like, 2050 sounds like, so how old would you be in 2050? <laughs> so, do, you can do the math, right? Or 2023. You don't have to say it out loud, right? So, so, so in 2050. 2050. But if you had, you know, 20 in 27 years, like for them, it's kind of funny. So one class they did the math, and then the next class I, I had two sections, so I did it again for this other class. And uh, one girl was like, I don't know, but I know I'd be old. And I had there's another there's another teacher in there, and because it's like 44, and so I'm 45. I was like, well, me and. Mr. McElroy, definitely take offense to whatever you just said, but but I get I get it, you know, uh, because it's like kind of out there. Like even even 27 years from now, like 20, 2050 sounds like this big thing. They'd be like in 27 years, you're like, well, things kind of be the same, but maybe like the way that this video kind of portrayed things was just like it's like kind of life as it is. Just the technology is better, and of course, their lives were better for it, um, and so. Uh, but what will things look like? I think for even for youth, like, will things get better? I think that's most people's thoughts. I think probably those in the church, we all think things are probably going to get worse. Um, especially when you look at the news, you're like, man, like, what, what will, th- I mean, if you, you know, we've talked about those things in the last five years, like things that have happened. If you're like, are we going to make it 27 years at that scale? Um, but, you know, the Lord will do what he's going to do. So we're talking you know, what he's going to do. Again, if this is, uh, if this is based on our, our past, this is at least a thousand years in the future, or this is uh, some time in the future that all these events have to, have to happen. But, you know, we look at, like, the events that we're going to talk about, and so our mind really is kind of the next phase in life. And we think about phases in life, like career or phases in life, about family. We can kind of think in those terms, like when we get hit the next phase, I think our phase is probably, I guess maybe driver, you know. I don't know. I was thinking when the kids are out of the house, but you know, things happen, right, when, when there's different phases. So you can kind of think, like, what will things my immediate life look like? We might be able to think ahead and, uh, you know, like a vacation or something, but what is, what is, like, the far future going to look like? And that's kind of where we're going to be over um, the next, I don't know, probably five-ish weeks um, as we kind of finish out 
Revelation. So, you know, last time we we finished up uh, Revelation 20, like the first half of Revelation 20, uh, what is the millennium? And so the final event of the millennium before the judgment of all mankind and the recreation of our world involves this colossal battle, right, between uh, that Satan starts and then Jesus finishes, but he starts it by deceiving the nations. Uh, we looked at Ezekiel 38 and what that looked like, and you know, I kind of tend to think that that's talking about that battle, but those would be a, at least a battle like it. And then it ends where, you know, Christ is victorious, and we see that Satan is punished in a lake uh, of fire forever. Well, after Satan is judged, uh, John records this vision. So we're in, in verse 11 of chapter 20. We read, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. And from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. <clears throat> so right at the beginning, you know, John's vision goes from Satan being thrown into the lake of fire, and then he sees a great white throne. So... What does a throne indicate? Throne indicate. What does your mind go to when you think throne? Okay. Monarch. Okay. So, uh, you know, probably the, 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 the position that goes in there and what that position represents. So we have authority and power. Um, and so there's the, the throne, though that John describes as a great white throne. So he uses the word great, which is mega. And so I think it's like 80 times it's, it's used in Revelation of something that is greater than what we would think is as large, you know, something on a grand scale. And so great, is it by size? You know, he doesn't great. give dimensions or anything like that. But whatever it is, it's large, it's big. And so great. And then he uses, you know, he, said, he indicates the color he says it's white. So what does white indicate? Because it's white. What's that? Purity. Purity, yeah. So normally, like, you know, we would think of a throne as being, I don't know, gold or some sort of you know, aspect of that. But this is a great white throne. And so this idea of, you know, ruling, purity, largeness. And so it, it kind of brings to mind a few places in Scripture. Um, so Isaiah 6, remember when Isaiah is in the throne room of God, uh, that... He saw the Lord seated on the throne. It was high and lifted up. And that's kind of like the description that um, Isaiah gives when he sees the Lord on it. And so, um, and then Isaiah is convicted by the fact of his sinfulness. But we see just kind of standing before the throne, there's this weight and the smallness that he sees. Um, Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 1, that whole chapter is pretty amazing. Uh, the, the vision that Ezekiel has of even the, the angels and what they look like, these spinning wheels and these four-headed 
you know, beings with wings or multiple sets of wings and um, what they're doing. But after kind of about, you know, two-thirds of the chapter in verse 26, he writes, And above the expanse over their heads there was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. So Ezekiel, before he was given kind of the visions that he was seeing, had this vision of the Lord on his throne. And so just a a little bit different take from his aspect as he's seeing in the sky uh, this vision. And in Revelation, the idea of a throne is seen uh, 50 times. The last time we see um, the throne, we see in in chapter, or actually the first time we see it is in chapter 4, verse 2. I'm going to read just that paragraph of what that description is of the throne there. So John says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So that's the vision that John had earlier when he first kind of seized the throne and all these thrones seated around there. The the vision that he has here is absent of those ideas because afterwards he says from the present from his presence um, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them so there's just the you know what we what our eyes are like at least what the vision he's declaring doesn't have any of the other aspects to it just the great white throne so I don't know, I, you know there, there's things that like I probably put into it, um, you know, just kind of like the details of as they try to visualize what it looks like. And so that just maybe helps me. But there could be all of those thrones around there. And John is just focusing on this throne. But I almost want to think that like everything is gone except this throne, maybe stairs ascending to it. And it's just kind of darkness, right? Like the, like a big spotlight or something where it's 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 illuminated. But that's at least visually the focus that John has for us um, on what it looks like. It looks like also the throne that was described before has this kind of a different appearance where instead of this kind of like jeweled aspect and even the one that sat there having this kind of radiance, um, we just see this, this white throne that is there. And so what do we see that has happened to the earth and sky? What does it say there? What does it say there? Okay, they fled away, and so that's, you know, really like when, when somebody flees, it, it runs, and it's the same description. It almost just kind of like scatters. Um, and so why do you think the earth and sky have fled away the earth and sky in this moment? In this moment. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So we've got this. We've got this again. Like the, you know, again, like the. The reality is, is that whatever the vision that John has in this moment, John, nothing else is needed, right? The earth and the sky, like, are 
are no longer required. Their purpose um, has been used up. And so this moment is a moment for something else, something different. And at this moment, the focus is on the throne. We kind of read in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, I'll read a few verses there, um, about what you know, Peter had described kind of the purpose for the earth or really like the it's, it's, it's end, goal, end result of what God has for our current earth and even the current heavens. You think like the heavens are where his home is, you know. And so um, that, though, the sky is no more. Second Peter 3, verse 9 says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. All right, Peter's focus is for them, you know, what's the focus there? Just kind of pick up on it. It's the end of his letter as he's talking to them. You're living in a world, like, I bet in Peter's day, they were like, you know, what do you think things are going to be like in 27 years, better or worse? And they're like, it's probably going to be worse. What about 1,000 years? I can't even think about what that's going to look like, you know, let alone 2,000 years. And so, but, but the idea, right, is, is the here and now for Peter. And so what, as they're living in this world, are they, are, is he wanting to live, you know, him to live. To live, you know, how's he wanting to Well, as it's going to burn away, but he uses that as, a, as kind of like a, you know, a sobering reality. Because how, how does he want, how does, how does any of the, the authors of the epistles will even say, how does Christ want, want each of us in his church to live? Want each of us in his church to live. Expectantly. Like, they're, they were going through persecution. So, to remind them, the only reason the Lord is delaying is because of his grace. He's, he's gathering his elect, and he's not going to consume this earth until all have come to him. So be sober-minded, expectant. It can come quickly. Okay, so again, let's go one more step. So yes, and he does that. It is coming as a thief in the night. Why does he want us to be expectant? Coming as a thief in the night. So, so this idea of obedience, and he says that, like, I want you to live in righteousness. And so you kind of, like, unwind that and say, you know, if we're not living in righteousness, it's because we don't believe that Jesus is going to return tomorrow. Because if you ask that question, if Jesus is going to return tomorrow, we pro- I probably ask that question to you guys. How what would you live differently? How, what would you do? You know, those things. And so if we live like that, we'll live more righteous. And then the reason that we're not living righteously is, one, we probably aren't expecting the Lord to return tomorrow. But we're also thinking that oh, we're also- the world that we live in has something better to offer. And so what if that world was taken away? Like, you know, it's, 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 it's just like, you know, we were talking about this earlier, you know, teenager who's, who's speeding. What, 
if the teenager speeding is being irresponsible with the car that they have, then what, what do you think is the parent to do? They have, then what, what do you think is the parent to do? Take, take it away from them, right? And so maybe, like, until they realize it because, like, oh, you know, driving's fun until you don't have a car, right? And so this idea. So whatever you're living at in this world or whatever hope you're putting in this world, at some point, this world's melting away. It will be gone, and the only thing we have left is Christ. Now, in John's vision, I think that's a part of, like, the reality. Like, the world is gone, so I, I kind of I kind of think like the order of the way things happen like is even done um, in a way that we can just understand that God removes everything and so what's left in this vision so we've got the throne and the earth and the sky have fled away what else do we see seems to be the only things that are there if we go back to Revelation twenty are there yeah there are these books and a particular book is identified. So, are they floating? <laughs> are they on a table? You know, we don't know, but the only thing that we see is thrown, oh. everything gone. We'll see the people in just a second, and then these books. And so, it's, it's this king, all of humanity, and everything else is gone. And so, you see, you know, again, all the dead are described, both great and small. And then these books, so... Why books? Books. So, why books? Okay, because books keep records. So, again, a visual of an understanding. Um, an understanding. And in some sense, even, you know, is it because John couldn't conceive of, you know, an iPad or a computer or something? and. Uh, a hologram touchscreen or something like else or whatever. But like when you see a book, you you understand that that book has been printed and that book isn't able to be changed, right? Once something's like published, then that edition is as it is. And if there were mistakes in that edition, you can go back to an earlier one and say, well, this is like what, you know, how it was written before. Someone can make an update. But these books, right, are things that are recorded that are in there. And so we see... In particular, one book, the Book of Life, kind of like makes us pause and think, well, what's, what's that about? And there's a couple times that we see these ideas of, of a book or books that are described. And back in Daniel chapter 7, you know, Daniel has several visions of the future. Some of the things like happened within his, uh, you know, just happened. in the generation after his lifetime. Some happened within his lifetime. Um, and then some are kind of far-reaching And in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, he writes, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. And his throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So it's almost like you got kind of like two views of like one at the beginning of Revelation, and this idea of the books that were there. Have these books been there all along? Possibly. Or or maybe Daniel's looking at kind of two different events in the vision that he's seen. If you flip over in chapter 12, we see a a different take on a, a different vision. 
Different take. In Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, he says, And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since, been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time. Seal the book until the time. And so, fast forward to Revelation chapter 3. I haven't seen kind of a reference, but even in Revelation chapter 3, we see a reference to a book. And we're going to read kind of the whole section because in Revelation there's different, uh, this this section, um, chapter 2 and 3, we see God's kind of letters to the churches. And so, in chapter 3, we see, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so here, you know, early on, before all the events that are talked about in Revelation to the churches, they had an opportunity, and one of the ways that, you know, the things that... that um, uh, the Lord, specifically writing to the, the churches, was trying to uh, use as an incentive, perhaps, was the fact that those that would remain pure would be written in this book of life. So, it says that there will be judgment by what is written in verse 12. So, why, why is that important? So, why, why is that important? The idea of having, you know, books that people will judge, their works are written in these books. There's one book who's uh, the book of life. Those that, whose name are in the book of life will be clothed in white, and they've got some sort of reward, and everyone else will be judged by what they've done. Judged by. So why, why is that important that, that God uses kind of this idea of, of books? We've already talked about, like, you know, yes, those things are, are written. Yes, those things are recorded. Yes, those things are set in stone. But what does this whole um, vision help us understand? Vision help us understand. There's a set standard that... Okay, so there's a set standard that will be applied, and that's true. Standard that will be applied, and that's true. What's that? There'll be accountability. Okay. And so what does this say about the fact that, like, what you're going to be judged on is based on, yes, a standard, you're going to be held accountable for it, and the thing that you're going to be, again, judged by is just plainly what's written in the books. 
what does this give us a, a sense of when it comes to um, salvation? Um, or at least we'll say judgment. It's irrefutable evidence. Okay. It's irrefutable evidence. Okay. That, because this is really the idea of a, a judgment. Yeah. You see a courtroom. Yeah. With the judge, where evidence, witnesses, all presented for the judge to give the fair and righteous. Yeah. Yeah, so it, exactly. So this upholds, again, um, it's not just God saying, like, you're in and you're out, right? Again, God is, is holding people to the standard that he's held as their king, as their authority. You know, it's, like, it's not like, well, who is this? Who's on that throne? Like, I didn't elect him. You know, it wasn't, he's not, he wasn't the one that I chose. He wasn't the God that I followed. But in the end, there's just one throne. There was one creator. There is one God. There is one judge. And it's not up to the judge, you know, it's not up to this judge or God to just be like, well, I'm basing it on whether, you know, you got in or based on, you know, reincarnation or based on whatever. It's by the standard that was set, by the law that was set, and by the works. And, oh, by the way, I'm not making it up. These works are written for everyone to see, for everyone to, to look at and say, were those things the things that you've done? And this is the, how judgment is going to happen. The, how judgment. And so, again, all of these things, you know, kind of filling in the details of, of you know, John pulling, seeing a vision that's also reinforced from other places in Scripture, that we see these books, we see this throne, and, again, what's being carried out. So... We see that uh, in there, right, in this, in this scene, that some other things are, are kind of described, right? The, the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they, what they had done. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So, there's nowhere that is holding back. Basically, everybody is there to be judged. Now, we've got a few different kind of places that have been described, the sea, death, and Hades. And I was going to pause and kind of talk about those just so you have kind of like a little bit of an understanding of, you know, what they are, how they're, they're understood. So, um, so, you know, why those places and what do those indicate? If, if we go to Revelation chapter 1, in verse 17, um, we see the description of death and Hades kind of being, brought, of, of being together, but how Christ relates to them. Uh, but he laid his right hand on me. So this is John saying that the Lord laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are, and those that are uh, to take place after this. So we see kind of a description of these two terms I used together. In Luke chapter 16, so, okay, so how, how are these, these kind of terms used together? Hades would be how the Greeks um, in their mythology would have understood that all of the dead would have gone to. So... For um, John and, you know, we'll look at even Jesus to kind of use these terms or using terms that the people would kind of understand as like a general place where people go after their, you know, when they have died. In the Old Testament, this term would have been Sheol. Now, 
Is that a place of judgment or is this a place of um, something else? Because we see a description, it's, again, the, where, where these are, are kind of pulled out. If you look at Luke chapter 16, you've heard this, this story before of the rich man and Lazarus. I'm just going to read to you a, a little bit about what this looks like from Jesus' you know, description of what happens to them after they had died. So this is, I've alluded to this, sometimes theologians call this as like the intermediate state. So until the sea, death, and Hades, at this point, where we're looking at Revelation, are done away with, in our minds, like, where do we go when we die? And so there's a few fragments that are kind of pulled together, but this is, this is kind of a clear indication, and, and some refute this in the sense that, well, Jesus is telling a parable, so you can't take a whole lot out of it, but he's using specific terminology that he would have said, like, well, this is where they go, and this is how you would understand, you know, what would happen to these people, and how it carries out is something that maybe can be debated. Is it something, you know, these two people were real, or are these two people um, just examples? And so that's, a, that's another discussion. But in verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in, pur- clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So we got a clear like description of these two people. One in this earth seems like he's blessed and he's wealthy, you know, and revered. And this other man, like he's like, I got a bad lot in life where he's got sores and the dogs will lick his sores. Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, sometimes described as Abraham's bosom, this idea of like a place of comfort by Abraham. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And you know the story, he calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy in me, and then go and tell my brothers, right? And then it kind of finishes in verse 30. He says, and, and he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Because he says, like, go and tell my, you know, my brothers, like, what, you know, what's, what's happened. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should even rise from the dead. You know, Jesus saying this before, what? He rose from the dead. And so uh, we've got kind of this, this understanding that they both died and they both went to this place. Now, one was described as Hades, but he was in Hades in torment. And the other went to the place that was described as, you know, a place of comfort where Abraham was. And so sometimes it's described as a place of paradise. And so... Paradise. <laughs> What's that? Catholics get purgatory. What's that? Is that- um, I bet they probably would reference this uh, as like within their framework. Um, there's other places that would be true. And yes, from the Greek understanding, like there was a place of the dead and there was like different levels and places you could go. But even in, in, uh, in um, Sheol, there was kind of this like, you know, idea of for David, you know, uh, when he lost his son, right, that he had, he kind of lamented and said, you know, I'm better off in Sheol. Sometimes it's like, 
a description of when you go to Sheol, like that's a place of like judgment. It's for those that have sinned or fools in, in Proverbs. Um, but again, for others like David, and, and it's lesser so, but a place of just like it's where you go when you die. So is it a place describing something that is judgment specifically, or is it something that is a place that is before the new heavens and the new earth, a final judgment? So, and I, I think I mentioned, I wrote a paper on this, and I'll give you my conclusion. Because uh, I, I was like, oh, I can't believe I wrote that. So, um, anyway, sometimes you, sometimes you surprise yourself, but... Sometimes you surprise yourself. But. Uh, on the same token, is that where, because I was thinking about Catholics too, is that where they might draw the idea of praying to... Yes. ...called out to Abraham. Into, yeah, to interceding to... to, interceding to someone, you know, whoever, yeah, intercede to, to someone. Yeah. Whoever. And... Yes, probably, but then even then, it's like the idea of you know praying to to Mary. Like that's nowhere in Scripture to pray to Mary. Um, even I mean, there's just certain things that seem to be counter to what Scripture says. Um, but uh, you know, that idea is that yes, like you can intercede. There, there's a place in the Old Testament. Um, there's a place in the Old Testament. Um, Samuel that went to like the. There was when Samuel had died, um, the king went to, what was that king? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? And like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, so you've got kind of these like speaking to the dead, couple places in scripture that you kind of look at, and it's like, well, we'll build our whole theology around there. So um, Theology around there. So, um, the other thing they, the, the Catholics argue is that they argue against the, the canonization process of our scripture. Yeah, there's a there's a whole there's a whole like thing that we can go off of. Um, but I, I would say it's probably not like you know. But I, I would, we were just when we were visiting um, our friends. Uh, one of them is uh, the wife is converted to Catholicism. So like every day we had like conversations about you know what her process was and in, in looking at you know going to Catholicism. But that's not like. That's that's becoming more common. Um, Those that grew up evangelical um, are going to Catholicism, and you've got these kind of things that are there. I mean, some of it is has to do with authority, and like, hey, this is in tradition, you know. And some people gravitate towards that. And there's a whole lot of things though. Like, if you dig deep though, um, deep though, some things don't make sense to me, but. And then usually, I mean, at least in this case, it was like, well, I'm still new. And so it's like, yeah. but I would think, like, you would want to resolve those issues before. But in any case, so that's not that's not that topic. But that's, that's like, uh, you know, conversations that you have. But, yes, that's kind of as a side. I think from these passages and a couple other passages is where they pull their theology on what that looks like. Um, and unfortunately, I personally, and unfortunately, you know, um, no, I think people don't go set out, like, I'm going to do this doctrine for this reason. But it was convenient that within kind of like the Middle Ages, people could pay these indulgences to get out of purgatory. So there was like a, you know, an economic benefit of having some of these theologies like um, emphasized uh, more. Emphasized. <clears throat> um, well, what about the sea? So we've got Hades. Like that's kind of one that has always like, what, why, why the sea? Um, well, uh, Simon Kistemaker, who's a commentator, uh, in the book of Revelation, 
He writes that the sea is symbolic of a demonic power that holds the invisible graves of its victims. The ancients attached great importance to burial, which was denied those whom the sea had swallowed and whose bodies decomposed. For a corpse to be left unburied here because of the sea's power was an act of irreverence. So this idea, and you've probably heard too that those that were burned, um, something similar, uh, there was... I always forget who it was. Um, anyway, there was, uh, I think it was Wycliffe. Uh, the Catholic Church, like he had died. And the Catholic Church like had pronounced a sentence on him after he had died, I think like 50, 100 years later. And they dug up his bones and burned them. And it was like, you know, as like a punishment. Because in their minds, like if you were burned, if you were buried, you know, if you, if you were, uh, you know, lost at sea, those things, like your body is now disassociated. And so how can God resurrect you if your body is not, you know, resurrect you if hasn't decomposed in dirt? I, you know, I, don't, I don't know. Anyway, so that's, that's kind of the idea. So that's where the sea is as well. But, you know, John in his vision is saying there is no lost place. Like, Everything that has anywhere that anyone has been sent that has died, even if they're lost at sea, like they will be here at judgment. So there's not like this traveling the world. And that's where you get all those stories about ghosts and, you know, whatever, like they're walking the earth because they never, you know, they hadn't resolved something in their lifetime. So even those that were um, in the sea, the sea is giving up his dead. And, and it's interesting, you know, because if you think about the sea, um, you know, it represents different things. Uh, like I had a friend when we lived in California that was a surfer that was like, there's going to be no sea. Like what a sad surf- place. There will be no surfing. Cause like surfing was his like, you know, was his life. And you think like, well, there's other things. He's like, yeah, but surfing's great. You know? So for somebody who, like lives in the ocean, you can think about, you know, those cultures that like their life was like on the sea. I mean, so for some of these fishermen, right, their life was, you know, fishing. Um, and so for some, and probably more so at that time, like going out in the ocean, right? Going out in the sea was like, was, was a terrifying experience. It's a little bit less so now, but I still think, I don't know. How many of you guys have been in a ship at sea? Was it any of them? I mean, you in the Navy or, you know, just like right in the middle of the ocean. You're like, as soon as you lose land, and if you're like, we are thousands of miles, you read about the stories of people who like, you know, their boats lost power and they're like adrift at sea. I'm like, what a terrifying thought. Um, you're just out there be like lost in space right now in my, in my mind. But in any case, so he's got this idea of the sea um, that was that idea, and that's what it looks like. So again, Hades is a place of death in Greek mythology. Um, you see this idea of a paradise, which is a place for believers. It might be a separate place of torment for those in Hades. And Sheol is anytime you, uh, the Greek translation replaced Sheol with Hades, and so there's a place kind of a description. So this is kind of like, where do people go? This is, this is my, um, my summary of the intermediate state. I wrote, so little is said in Scripture about the intermediate state because the authors were only moved as to how the Holy Spirit guided them. Their knowledge of exactly what they were narrating, prophesying, praising, or lamenting took time to develop. Some later teaching utilized phrases and ideas commonplace at the time to express how the next life looks. This is not to minimize the teaching. However, it is to be clear that an exact description is not critical. 
To be in heaven is to be in glory, and to be in hell is to be in torment. Too much information does not do justice to future experience. New Testament authors might have a neglected explicit teaching on the intermediate state because they viewed Christ's return as real and imminent. In the end, man's hope is not in the next state, but in Christ's victory on the cross and the new creation. Victory on the new creation. So there's things, I don't know. I think I probably stole it from someone. But anyway, I don't know what I got. So um, anyway, but the idea again is where do we go next? We just generically call it heaven. We'll be clothed in white. Will we have bodies? You know, actually I addressed all those things in like the paper of like maybe, you know, from what we see. But really doesn't matter. In the end, we have clear description. And that's what we're actually going to be looking at of what that looks like. So. That was kind of those ideas of Hades, uh, death, Hades, and, and the sea. So what happened to death and Hades? See, so what happened to death and Hades? Yeah, thrown into the lake of fire. And so why is that? Fire. And so why is that? Yeah, so they were, they were no longer needed. Just like the earth and sky going away, like they were no longer needed. You know what wasn't thrown in the lake of fire? The sea. No longer needed. You know what wasn't thrown in the lake? No, but uh, so there's hope for the surfers, you know. So in any case, but it, the idea again was the death was, death was given up, and then this idea of death and Hades, right? They're no longer needed because death. We'll see what the description is. What is what does John describe the lake of fire as? The lake of fire. As. The second death, and the first death is death. Um, the second death is the lake of fire. So these, these kind of holding places after someone dies and God does this next thing are no longer needed. So they're thrown away, and then we have only like two kind of descriptions. We've got this lake of fire, um, and then we have uh, the, uh, something that we'll get to next week, uh, new heavens and a new earth. So verse 6, we see the lake of fire mentioned earlier. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over the second death, has no power, but they will be priests of God, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. In the lake of fire, we saw that the beast, the prophet, Satan, and now death and Hades are those, and then finally, those who are judged. Who are judged. So, again, I want us to kind of go back, like, what this looks like. You know, again, the the vision and and how John describes what he sees. Um, You know, he doesn't talk about how long it takes. I mean, uh, you know, what the process is. He just kind of describes that there's the throne, there's the books. And then we see that there is this lake of fire that is there for everyone else. And so we don't know, again, all all the brush strokes to kind of paint that picture that fills in the details of how John has sketched it. But we do know that there is a certainty about these events. And he doesn't, he doesn't spend too much time. He does come back, and we'll get to it at the very end of, um, of uh, Revelation. Right now, he just describes what the scene looks like and what happens. But he will plead for people at the end you know, it's as, as John is finishing the letter of like, so what do we do with this information? Right now, it's just describing what's happening. And so for, one, for, for where we leave right now is, is kind of a, a heavy scene, but a scene that is true nonetheless. But a 
So he then will have a new vision um, of something that we as believers will put our hope and our trust in. And again, our hope and trust is not in these things, but in Christ. But these are the rewards for following and being obedient to Christ. For those that aren't, there is this place of punishment, this fire that awaits. That's the second death, not a true death. Not, you know, that those people will be eliminated, but this idea that there will be this torment um, going further into the future. Um, but we'll talk about that a little bit more later on. But we'll so, any questions or thoughts about what we talked about here? Thoughts about what we talked about here? What happens to the sea? What happens to the sea? Because I thought that's where I wanted to be until you explained what it was. Well, at the time, why the sea? The sea, again, was a scary place. Like, now it's not so scary. And it probably is, you know, for most people, the sea is... And it probably is, you know... Yeah. better than death in Hades, you know? Yeah. And everyone that came out of death in Hades went into the lake of, the fi- lake of fire along with death in Hades, so... But not everybody that died, the first death, and not everybody that was in Hades, because there, the, there is the judgment, right, and there is the book of life. So for those that were whose names were in the book of life, even those that came out of the sea, they will have something else waiting for them. And that's what we have next. There's a river. We had extensive I had extensive talks, you know. I had extensive talks, you know. So maybe the sea I think so. I mean I kinda landed, I was like, there's you know, I said, Well, there may not be surfing, but there's probably something better than surfing. It was, like, it was just so funny having this conversation. It was like, what's better than surfing? And you're like, I, I don't think you're getting like the whole point you know, of what we're, what we're trying to talk to. So, Do they have wave machines? I don't know. I mean, you've seen wake surfing. Like That blew my mind the first time I saw it. So there's maybe it's just behind a lake in a boat. Are you saying death in Hades represents an interest? Uh, so death is like the description of like what happens to people, and Hades is that is that description of where people go. Yes, so Hades is an intermediate place. So if you said something like, for instance, if, if back then I said go to Hades, you know, the idea would be like I wish you were dead. But there's a but and, and and people have a different view. And my I know and my and and the way that I would interpret it, even for Shale, Shale was like I wish you were you know. Death is, like, what awaits you. So normally for most people, like, death, the end of life, was, like, a terrifying unknown. Well, as Scripture goes and Revelation goes, we understand more about, like, what happens after death. Even people who are, anyway. So um, Hades would have within it a place of torment and a place of uh, paradise. Uh, Paradise. But the question is, even for the believer, you're saying that there is this intermediate place of Hades, because Paul makes it clear that we are in the true, true. I think that's yeah, yeah, yeah. Not separated from like, yeah, like not separated like Abraham and those guys are like we're in a waiting room waiting. But Hades is kind of like the portal to death. But essentially, I would say death. <laughs> this is the weird thing too so because this is because yeah so as you kind of like think so you've got this judgment and you got this book of life so if if everybody if everybody gave up the dead like you're already in heaven and you're like oh 
it's time. I guess we all go to this like throne and we're already in the book of life. Like again, some of the details, and that's why I kind of, like I said, they don't describe. And even as we talk about what does the millennium look like and all these things, we try to make sense of what it looks like linearly, but how they use the terms Hades would just be like, you die. Um, it usually was used in a negative sense, as in, like, a bad thing. Like, yes, go to Hades. It was like, you're dead. This life is over with. For the believer, though, you're like, fine, I'll go to Hades. But Hades to me is, is heaven. But Hades to me is... Because he's using kind of Greek terms. Greek, Greeks didn't have this idea of, like, heaven. I mean, Greeks didn't have this idea of, like, heaven. So, in other words, he's using it more as a generic... Uh, here... I mean, specifically, it's in the terms of judgment, but here Hades is used as, like, here Hades is used as those that will be judged, unbelievers. But it's not always used as a place only for unbelievers. Yeah, I'm talking about it's used as a place only for unbelievers. Yeah, I'm talking about it in the prior where Lazarus being in the Lazarus being in the bosom of Abraham and stuff. Yeah. Right, and it, it also you like think like, well, who's the audience, and what would their understanding be? Right, it's almost like Jesus knows. Right, when when the disciples sometimes he'd be like, you know, disciples sometimes he'd be like, I, I I could go into that more, but you just wouldn't understand. Like even when the when he was pressed about the man who got who the or the woman whose husband died and she got remarried, and like so whose husband would he be? And he's like, you're not thinking about this right. Um, it's just kind of a different understanding and context. So how as they use those terms, what's, what, how are they employing those terms, and how would the people understand it? It's always not with the precision that we would say. In the end, like because the idea of lake of fire, like he doesn't use that term anywhere. He uses sometimes uh, Jesus, and I say he, Jesus used, sometimes uses the term Gehenna or hell, which referred to kind of a trash heap that was on fire outside of Jerusalem because that kind of gave the picture for people of like what it's going to be like. But in this sense, it's, it's this understanding of a lake of fire as John saw his vision. Does that make sense? That's probably not fully clear, but that's how, that's how I would interpret it. And some, though, I would say some say anytime Hades is used, it's hell. Anytime Shale is used, it's hell. Um, I don't see that because I think there are places that are a little bit less like that. So Less. That's what I'm saying. So you're saying, well, was he not saved? You know, there's the implications for that. Usually it's under, you know, he was under distress, so maybe he wasn't thinking clearly. I mean, again, those are the things that I, you know, wrestle with and argue, and that's where I landed. In the end, like I said, if you had a different take and I have a different take, does it matter? You know, we know where we eventually go. Um, What's that? Eventually, after... (laughs) Maybe it's an express lane. You bypass Hades. You're like, oh, that was Hades. I can't get off this exit because I'm going straight to heaven. But what's that? Straight to heaven. Yeah, I'll work on that. I'll, I'll do a, a diorama or something else. So. All right, we'll end there. All right, we'll end there.